Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with Hall of Fame manager and newly minted Chicago White Sox skipper Tony La Russa. Brett will dive into Tony's return to the dugout after being out of uniform for the last few years, his years in baseball in Chicago, Oakland, and St. Louis, plus much, much more. And now, here's your Brett Boone. Tony LaRussa, thank you for coming on the Boone Podcast. You're back. You're back where it all started in Chicago. Uh, and I believe 1979 was your first managing gig. Uh, 2020, you're back as the White Sox manager. How does that feel? Well, it's uh, it's weird because the coincidence for one, uh, that that's where I started and and it's, you know, the other part of the weirdness is that normally if you get a chance to manage a team, you don't manage a team that's, that says, well, stock with talent is this one. You know, you usually pick up a club that's struggling, but the, uh, the White Sox look like they're going to be really tough to play against. Yeah, I watched them in, uh, you know, I played, paid closer attention. At, I, I knew they were going to, they were improving over there, but uh, I watched this year and there is, there's a lot of young, exciting talent. Kind of reminded me of the 2019 Minnesota Twins from an offensive standpoint, but uh, yeah, they haven't had much excitement on the South side in a long time. So, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty cool to inherit that team. I want to, I want to get to what is, what is a 76-year-old Tony LaRussa? What would you tell that rookie that, that started his first managing job in 79? With all you've been through, all you've seen, uh, you've been on the executive side, obviously you managed for a lot of years. Uh, what would you tell a young Tony LaRussa going into this, this new gig? Well, I uh, got that job uh, in 70, August of 79, and I think the only reason that I got it, you know, because I had, I mean, I, I was in uniform. I don't even say I played for 17 years, but I was in uniform. Cause I, was, you know, I was very, I was even, if I say I was mediocre, I don't really cut myself up, you know, a lot of compliments that I don't deserve. But the last three years I did player coach. So I got a feel for the managing, but to only be part of, you know, 78, I was part of one half year in double A and, and then in 79, in August, I get up there. I think the only reason I got it was Bill Vec. You know, he was such a maverick in a way that because I had a law degree, he thought, "Hey, let's just give this guy a shot, and then next year we'll come up with a a real manager." And so when I got up there, I I had no illusions, man. I just do the best I could, but I was holding on with my fingertips and would never, ever have thought that I could have a long career. And then that's that means by definition, I wouldn't be looking at it when I was seventy six, just thinking I'm coming back. Just, it never occurred to me I would hang around that long. A lot of great teams you've managed, the 89 A's, the 06 and 011 Cardinals, all world champions. And I think of sluggers over the years that you got to manage. And the, and the four, and one of them is a, a good friend of both of ours. And, and you're friends with the others a lot tighter than I am. But Pujols, Big Mac, uh, Jose Canseco, and my favorite, the bull, Greg Luzinski. What were the similarities and the differences before uh, with those four different sluggers? You know, the thing that jumps out at me, Brett, is that all four of those guys were high average hitters. So they were, that means 
you know, they just weren't trying to yank a ball down the corner and, and, and he hit home runs and then hit in the mid two fifties or lower, all these guys hit 300 and it's because they were solid hitters who uh, got a lot of base hits, started a lot of rallies, drove in a lot of runs with singles, but also had a lot of carry in their ball and, 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 and they would hit home runs. And to me, that's the, uh, the thing that, I, when you mentioned those four particular guys, as opposed to, you know, I've had some guys that, you know, had good power and, you know, and their batting average is still okay. But they're really, if you have that kind of uh, approach where you can get a base hit as well, there, there's no one way to pitch any of those guys. And they were smart. And I hate to admit this about, about Bull because I love to torment him. We all did. But, you know, he's really a smart player, smart hitter. And, and, they knew how to make adjustments, and it's the mark of uh, it's a stroke and, and the smartness that makes high average hitters. Where these guys just got you know just got great carry on the ball when they hit it. A lot of great pitchers throughout your career. You had a chance to manage. Give me your starting five, if if you can only pick five. That's that's a, yeah that's a I won. I've played that game just to have some fun. It always proves to myself how lucky uh, I was. Because of the talent, uh, uh, I'm going to start with one guy that you know. Normally, and I'm glad the way you asked it, Brad, because the, the 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 way to ask it that would have been, you know, I would I probably wouldn't have answered in the sense that, you know, who's the best pitcher that ever pitched for you, because that's just disrespectful, and you've got different, you know, kind of generations in you. But Dave Duncan, you know, our our great pitching coach that we were together 29 years from '83 till the end. Uh, he said if he had to pick one game, the guy that he would pick would be Chris Carpenter. Uh, but I, I would not have answered that way, not because Chris wouldn't have deserved it, but I would look at, you know, at the uh, Oakland A's. I mean, you you cannot disrespect Dave Stewart, won 20 games four years in a row. Uh, we have Bobby Welsh who won 27 one year uh, in uh, Chicago. We had a uh, Cy Young winner named Lamar Hoyt. Uh, then you go back to the the, uh, the uh, Cardinals. You had Adam Wainwright. Uh, actually, we had Darrell Kyle, whose career was shut, cut short. So if I had to name the five, uh, you know, I think you just got to give credit to Hoyt. Uh, I'd pick, you know, Stu and, uh, and uh, Bobby Welsh uh, as starting pitchers now. And then I'd pick Carp and Wainwright, and that's five. But – there's some really good pitchers that uh, could be in that list. And obviously we also had a couple of really good, especially Eck as an outstanding closer. When I, when I was getting ready for this, I, I looked into it and I, you know, we played against each other for years, but I, w- I was just going over all the players you manage. And I, and I came up with two guys for me that really kind of transcended the game, not only because they were, they were, they were great players, but their persona, their, they, they had something different about them, an aura about them. The first guy I want to talk about is uh, Eck, Dennis Eckersley. It's kind of, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you were kind of at the very beginning of that closer, like Eck, Eck takes the ninth inning. I, I think Bruce Suter was a little bit before him, but, but you guys kind of made it in vogue uh, 
that closer position. And it kind of changed the game. And I think as the game goes on, that led to the lefty-righty matchups, which we see today, which is a little overblown in my opinion. I think that's why they put the rule in. You got to pitch to three hitters. But talk a little bit about uh, Dennis. I got to I got to play against him in the beginning of my career, uh, but but you managed this guy for a long time. T- tell me about Eck a little bit. Well, Eck was an outstanding starting pitcher, and he won almost a couple hundred games as a starter. But uh, we got him when he was a veteran, and uh, and just going back a stride. Uh, you know, if you go way back to when the starters were the you know they were everything, and quote the guys in the bullpen were guys that weren't good enough to start. Then you start looking at transition, and for years, you know, teams have started to, you know, the age when they won the '70s. You know, uh, Sparky Loud, Goose Gossage, you know, uh, you know, Raleigh Fingers, and uh, you know, you know, Tug McGraw. I mean, all these guys, they pitch more than one inning most if they had to. Uh, and in, but in '88, uh, and it was, you know, people have put my name next to it, and every time that I get a chance, whether privately or publicly, I, I try to. Corrected. Dave Duncan is the one that deserves the credit for this because in '88 we had really improved the ball club and we ended up winning 104. And in spring training, uh, Dunk said, "How good do you think our team is?" I said, "Man, I think we're really good." He says, "You know, uh, the year before '87 we had gotten Dennis Eckersley to be a, a protection starter, but because..." Uh, uh, Jay Howell had a bad elbow. He had to save some games. He saved 15 in 87. And he showed this flourish, man, where he'd come out there, ice water in his veins, and could dot an eye, you know, on any part of the play, especially, especially away from the middle of the play, in or out, up or down, you know. So we, we, oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, you know, you faced him. So you got it. Yeah, Eck was the closer, and 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 the and the, and the, and the conversation was, you know, do you, since you think we're going to be a good club, you know, we're going to be ahead of games. The more often that Eck can be available, you know, the more we're going to win. So it was Dave's idea, and then I I just naturally followed in and said, oh yeah, you well, I think that means he just pitches the ninth. But it was Dave's idea, and uh, I think. T- that it, it really has caught on. The only thing that I sometimes have tried to clarify for managers, that's if you think you have a really good team where you're going to be ahead a lot. But if you're, you know, if you're a 500 club, you know, then sometimes you were always saving the guy for the ninth, but you, you know, in the eighth, uh, a secondary setup guy would blow it and you didn't get to the, to the closer enough, but that, that kind of, you know, he, he set the tone. And, you know, then some guys, have, you know, many guys have followed, but it was Dave Duncan's idea. Okay, and the other guy is probably obvious, uh, Ricky Henderson. I got to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Ricky, I played against once again for years. You never knew as an opponent what type of guy Ricky was. And I talked to some good friends of mine and, and – and that I trust. You know how in the game we look across the sure. field and when we don't know you, we all form our little opinions. And I talked to Trevor Hoffman one day and, and you know, one of my good friends in the game. And he said, mm-hmm. Booney, Ricky Henderson, one of the greatest teammates I've ever had. And that floored me. I didn't think of that when I thought of Ricky Henderson. I got a chance to work with him down the line in the A's organization for a couple of years. What a great guy. But 
what an unbelievable player that that could beat you so many different ways. Uh, talk about Ricky a little bit. Well, for the for the fans who are listening to this, uh, I'm not sure you can top it with a, you know bringing up a point or a conversation because it, in all fairness, everybody needs to know about Ricky. And you said it exactly right. You know because he could beat you so many ways when and when you're on the other side, you know, he wasn't going to be your most popular player. And not only that, but he had a real flair, you know, and sometimes, hey, look at this guy, you know, he's playing to the crowd and all this stuff. But when you're his teammate, it's a 180 degree, and, and Trevor is exactly right. There wasn't anything about a superstar that Ricky brought to that clubhouse with his teammates. He was right in the middle of all the fun. You know, he loved to play dominoes. You know, he loved to play cards. He's always, you know, he's kidding around. But during our time, I mean, he was the most dangerous player of our generation because, you know, in the ninth inning, the way I would define it, if you're a manager and you had a one-run lead, Ricky was the most dangerous guy that, that could come up to bat because he'd get on, he could hit a double, he could hit a home run, he could hit a single and make it a triple. But I think the thing that you bring up, Brett, is, is absolutely golden for people to understand. Uh, he is really a fun guy who loves his teammates and, would, and did not disrespect any of them. You know, sometimes, you know, these superstars, their head gets bigger than their, uh, than their bodies, and they start acting like, you know, they invented a game and are very disrespectful to not just their teammates, but to fans. Ricky was totally the opposite. And so if you look at this great teammate who was a great, great player, you know, uh, and he also, by the way, you know, he's he was a precursor for the kids of the day that are, you know, when they they're you know, baseball is encouraging the young guys to show personality and show emotion. Right. Uh, and before, you know, guys would take it. That's nah, not sportsmanlike, but Ricky did it because that was part of his flair. And now it's, you know, it's something that is encouraged, but great, great player, great teammate, great person. And I think he summed it up when he said he could he could beat you so many different ways. He could make a single, a triple, and I and I talk about that all the time. I, I got a chance to play with some really star uh, stolen base guys. You know, I, I remember playing with Barry Larkin, uh, and not that he was stealing the bases that Ricky or Vince Coleman were stealing at the time, but he was stealing fifty, getting thrown out twice. And my mm-hmm. definition of a great base stealer isn't a guy how many bases he stole. But it's when everybody in the park knew he was going, he could tell you he was going, and he'd still steal a base to spite you. Ricky could do that. That's a talent that not too many people have, and and that's what I think of when I think of Ricky Henderson. He could steal second and third when the whole park knew he was going and completely change a game. You know, with a sacrifice fly, you're tied, so – yeah, that's well, that, that's pretty awesome. And Ricky, what a what a great guy. Like I said, I got to meet him late, and uh, he didn't disappoint. Well, I'd like to have one insight to what you just said, Brett, because uh, it, it'll refer to somebody that that uh, you know that we both know is great. But the guy that knows him even better is your pop, and that's Gene Mock. And, and my my insight is this: you know, before Gene really got it started. Pitchers were were easier to steal again. I'm not taking anything away from Lou Brock, but they didn't have all the little games, you know, where they change their timing and have a quick move over and all that stuff. Uh, but as during Ricky's heyday, 
defending the running game became a, an important defensive tactic. And the guy that started, in my opinion, was Gene Mock. So Ricky was stealing those bases, not only with everybody trying to stop him, but with a lot of different techniques that that would defeat a lot of good base runners. But a guy like Ricky or like Vince, you know, they were such their explosion was so quick and and their speed was so good that no matter how much you could try to defend it, you know, you had to be a, like a a slide stepper to stop them. And uh, that's the insight that I would add because he did it when guys not only were trying to stop him but had a lot of techniques. And the guy that uh, we all love to point out to fans how brilliant he was was Gene Mock. He started it. Yeah, Gene Mock, dad's favorite. I still hear about him today. And, uh, you know, I got to know Gene a little bit as a kid, but, you know, dad, dad's very fond of Gene Mock and, and just the intellect he had on the baseball side. You know, a lot of people, I, I, including yourself, call Gene Mock one of the smartest guys you've ever seen. Uh, yeah, well, I'll, give, I'll give you one P.S., Brett, not to interrupt, but I'm just going to get this at this. You know, I, I, I had a chance to play for Dick Williams, and Dick was a, just a, a really uh, smart baseball man. He told me one time, and I run it by other veteran great managers. They said, if all the managers in the history of the game were together for a clinic, the guy that would run the clinic would be Gene. That's how much baseball he knew. That's a pretty high praise right there. Um, <clears throat> change it up a little bit. When you left the field um, – you know, you retired on the uniform side. Uh, you spent some time with the Diamondbacks, the Red Sox, and the Dodgers. What did you learn about that side of the game or the executive side of the game? <laughs> so that's, uh, that's a great question because, you know, when, when you're downstairs, you're in your little cocoon, man. You know, you're, whether you're a player or you're trying to win with your team, if you're a coach or a manager, you really concentrate on your ball club and you look at the other club only when you get ready to play them, but you don't look at the big picture and you, you know, you're aware, you're aware as, as, especially if you're a manager or coach, you're aware of the organization, you know, you understand the value of scouts, uh, you know what, how difficult player development is and how important it is. But until you get upstairs and you see, all the different factors that are involved nowadays, you know, with the economics of the game, the rules, uh, and, and, you know, a lot of the innovations, uh, you realize that the, that the game is a lot larger and there's more complicated. So my first years with Arizona, you know, I, I had never really attended from first day to last day, uh, a free agent draft, you know, college and high school draft. And I could see what Scots went through and, and how they, you know, made up their board and reduced it. And then you go into and you see what professional scouts are doing and you see what a front office guy's got to do, taking the money that the, you know, it's provided and trying to max it out. So it, it's, it's much more inclusive. I had, I had kind of an idea, but I had no real understanding of how difficult that job is, but I'm going to tell you what's the most difficult. And that is, and I, I don't see how say a general manager, some of these guys, gentlemen, that have been around a long, long time. You know, you work 12 months a year. There's really no off season. But once the game starts, the game is totally in the hands of what's happening downstairs. You are totally helpless. And I thought that that for me was the uh, the toughest part about it because 
one, you know, the game is the thing, you know, I mean, that's what we, it's our team against their team. But once the game starts, if you're upstairs, you're just a fan and, and, you know, an excited fan, but you're helpless and you really are just uh, watching and hoping about, you know, the players will, will make a play, make a pitch that the manager will, you know, use, make good decisions that coaches will do their part. And, uh, I think it's a really way to make a living myself. That's why, uh, um, I feel more than lucky to go back downstairs and, and do the easy part. You had a, uh, you had a stint in the commissioner's office. Uh, I think you and, uh, Tory worked together, you and Joe. Yes. I know on the field, well, I've seen you. Well, I've seen myself. We all get fiery. Now, all of a sudden, that, that's just another experience that you've had. You've been everywhere. So now, all of a sudden, you're on the other side of the ledger, and you're handing out the fines. You're deciding what these managers or what these players, when we get pissed and we get in umpire's face, we get kicked out of a game. Now, all of a sudden, you're the disciplinary. Was that different for you? Was Was it? Kind of surreal being on that side of the ledger, and and how'd you how'd you handle those those situations? Well, the way it worked, Brett, was that uh, you know there, as Joe and I both were getting towards the end of our careers, Commissioner Seelig uh, told us both that he he really would like to have uh, more uh, experience that uh, from uniformed experience around New York and, and helping with some of the, the decisions. And Joe retired here before I did. So he went into operations. He was head of operations and he had the difficult jobs, more of uh, you know, an assignments guy. The only time I, if Joe was not available, then, you know, I would, you know, I was involved with some disciplining and, and, you know, working with umpires and so forth. But what you, what you see, uh, and I can tell you, Joe handled it because of the, the great respect that he had. You know, you're 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 torn, man, because you've been down there and you can understand, you know, the typical thing would come up, you know, there'd be a scuffle because somebody got drilled and, and the other side got upset. And then you're trying to, you know, look at it and be fair about what's the punishment, who who instigated it, who's at fault. And, and you know, as well as I do, man, that's, there's some real close calls and there's some stuff that happens down there before the action that, that, that caused it and and you're trying to nail everybody and be fair about it uh, and also be involved with umpires and, and their issues. Uh, it was a, it was an awakening. I can say I was lucky because most of the time I did assignments, Joe's the one that really had to, you know, and he had, luckily he had a really good staff, but Peter Woodfork, for example, and uh, guys like, you know, Chris Marinek and Morgan sword. I mean, they had a, you know, Kim Ng was down there and she's, I'm so pleased that she's gotten her chance to be a GM, but, you talk about a, a really smart lady that is smart uh, baseball executive. So I guess what I'm saying to you is that uh, it was different. It, it, was, it was fun to be close to the game. And, and I'm going to add one other thing to you, Brad. When I talk about being with a team and you see more of the game, if you're with MLB, man, then you see you see how, how it impacts around the world, man. You talk about a big industry that uh, most of us had no clue about. And I think you touched on the fact that the backstory, I think that's a key for, for the average guy listening to this right now. You see a brawl or you see somebody get drilled and immediately, oh, that guy should be fine, this guy. And they come, you know, friends of mine will come to me, well, Brett, what did you think? And my answer is, 
you know what? I saw what I saw, but I've got to know the backstory because I know in my career, you know, this something happens today might be a retaliation for two spring trainings ago when we finally got to the right time. So I, I think it's really interesting you bring that up for the guy out there listening that, yeah, there's always usually a reason for for a counter reaction. And, and that's that's really an, an intimate, unique part of the game that not everybody knows about. And, and you had to decipher it up in the booth like, all right, why did that happen because of this? Oh, yeah. Back. And then you hear the backstory down the line and, and try to that's got to be a tough position. Levy in those. Yeah, I mean, it's. You know, and getting the information, and you know, and everybody's you know blaming the other guy. You know, remember the old thing, Brett, about if 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 we hit Brett, it's because we hit you on purpose. If you hit Joe, if you hit the other guy on the other side, well, we were just trying to pitch inside and right. got away. <laughs> so everybody's got their own prejudice about the, the thing, but you hit it on the head, man. I mean, the the weirdest ones and the ones that you, you know sometimes there's a little bad blood for maybe the last year, or the last series you played, and you. And in and, and New York, they'll 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 call the umpires and they'll call the managers. Hey, look, let's not get it started. But sometimes, man, it, I remember one time it came out one time where a guy drilled and he was on our team and we you know you and we we didn't allow that you know uh, we 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 would protect our guy. We didn't want to go out there and start it. And uh, he took a shot and it's, and and you know and I'm, what the hell is that about? He says, well, in two years ago in the minor leagues. You know, he, he got a big home run and he pranced around. And I said, next time I see him, I'm going to drill him. So you you never know. And, and it's hard sometimes to find out. But it's, at times, you know, it's one of those things, maybe you laugh about it later. But you don't laugh about it when it's happening. Right. But your legacy, it was, uh, you got inducted in the Hall of Fame 2014. You're in the A's Hall of Fame and the Cardinals Hall of Fame. It's kind of a pretty cool trifecta. There's not too many of you guys in uh, big league managers. You, you've got a small, unique group. How how cool is that? And is that, you know, we, we all get into this game, Tony, and, and we, we, we get in the game because we love this game. And, and I don't think any of the, the guys that make it to that, that unbelievable place, the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, ever go into it thinking that's my goal. But – but it's got to be pretty surreal when it actually happens. How was that for you? Well, here's a, a kind of part of our conversation where I know when I say these things, uh, especially when we're in person, some of the raise their eyebrow, like, you know, you, you just, you're, you're not really being sincere. And I'm telling you that I'm as sincere as I can be. I always felt the hall of fame was for players. And, uh, and then if you see a manager in the Hall of Fame, then I always thought, which was true, you know, the managers that got in, they were really more baseball ambassadors as well as having the records. So you looked at, you know, like a Tommy and Sparky and Whitey from our, our generation, you know, they, they, you know, they tell, you know, funny stories, you know, and I was kind of a relentless kind of grinder. So I, when, when started having some uh, career success where and, and people were talking about it, I was never comfortable because uh, I thought it was a player's thing. But the other side, and I've said this many, many times, there has been never, ever a manager in the major leagues that has equaled my good fortune. And I'll tell you why. I was in three teams for those 30 years. 
each of those teams had great owners, had a great front office, and they got you players. And they also valued, every one of those teams valued the manager and the coaches as far as asking your input and stuff. All my other, and I've got some friends, you know, like you know, Jim Leland, for example, you know, Lou Pinella, people like that, that, you know, I, I think they should be in the Hall of Fame. But, and I've said it, if they were where I was, they would have the career wins because nobody has been as lucky. Other places, other managers sometimes, you know, the owner is trapped and can't spend, or maybe the front office, you know, isn't effective and you don't get players. So uh, I never took it for granted. I, I think it's a great, great honor. Uh, I, I've always been a little embarrassed by it. And, uh, you know, for two years, I had the, we all had the great experience in Chicago of playing with Tom Seaver, who was man, so, well, not just a legendary pitcher, but legendary personality, great uh, sense of humor. And, and he told me when I got in, he says, you know, you're really a coattail Hall of Famer. And I said, you know, Tom, believe me, I agree with you, man. You, you, you're trying to give me a shot just to get it going. But I agree. And my, my long way of thing is to tell you that uh, it is a great honor. The last thing I'll say is that, you know, the old saying about you got to be a lousy player to be a really good manager. And then I look at somebody like your dad. I look at Don Baylor and, uh, you know, you know I, I look at guys uh, that Lou Pinnell was, was a really good player. It, it, it isn't about whether you're a good player or a bad player. You know, it has to do with whether you love the game and you tried to learn it and you say it and applied it. Well, when I called you there for this podcast, we talked briefly and, and, uh, you're, the next episode for Tony La Russa is, is coming back uh, out of retirement, back onto the field. Mm-hmm. My first reaction was, and I told you this when, I, when we talked on the phone, I think this is great for baseball. I think uh, this generation, I, I think, and, and there's been a mixed reaction in the media. And not necessarily, it's, oh, Tony can't relate to this modern player. I've played against Tony La Russa a lot of times. A great baseball man is a great baseball man. And baseball never changes. That certain things in this game never changes. It's it's about relating to players. It's about relating to people. It's about reading people. It's about gut. It's about pl- applying the analytics. I think this is a great move. I think it's great for the game. And when I saw Dusty last year take over that Houston team, I thought it was the greatest thing they could do, especially with the little bit of a scandal they were going through. I thought Dusty was great to be out front for that. I, th- I think a similar thing with Tony La Russa coming back into the game. I think it's going to add a little of yesteryear back into the game. But, man, I think these, I think these modern-day players are going to love your type of guy. I, I really do. That's just my feeling. What are your expectations? Uh, how do you think it's going to be when you step into spring training for the first time? You haven't been there for a while, so it's almost like you're a rookie again, kind of. Well, I'm totally fired up. I bet, you know, since the day that the job was offered and then I accepted, I haven't had the first regret, which is a really good sign. You know, like, hey, man, what am I getting myself into? Uh, I've got a real good uh, reality that uh, I am hanging on too fiercely, and that is, uh, the players are not going to hear me talk about uh, past wins. It's going to be, you know, those things, they're in the book. It's all about the next ones. How many can we get with the White Sox? But, uh, uh, you know, I, I am, you know, I've, I'm, I'm definitely a aging guy. 
but it, it, you know, for the inactivity part, you covered it, man. You know, I, I have never been away from the game. I've been upstairs, and actually, uh, when you watch from upstairs, you see it kind of a more total game. So I'm, kind of, you know, I'm aware of of what's happened with our game, the available, the, you know, the different kind of information, and I do have a problem at times with how uh, the information is used as far as what are strategies that can win a game. So you know, I'm gonna, you know, just gonna try and use my common sense about, but it, uh, in the end, you hit it at the beginning. It, it has always been about, well, it's been always been, especially since they started having free agency and, 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 you know, the players had uh, the ability to make some money and, 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 you know, and, and get some fame and fortune, for example, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta get them, uh, not get distracted by that and, and remember it's a team game and you got to get them to play together. And the way you do that is just create a bunch of relationships. You know, the stuff I've watched you have, you know, in the teams you've been on when, you know, the chemistry where guys are pulling for each other, that doesn't happen automatically, man. And that comes from, you know, guys making commitments and, and, and the coaching staff is a part of it. So is the training staff. And, uh, that's that was always the challenge. It's going to be a challenge this year. The one thing, that, and, I'll, and I'll say this, I'm really excited about because I've now I've got it from a bunch of people that observed, and from the the I'm walking into a situation where the team has already uh, understood the value of chemistry. So it isn't like I'm going to walk in there and say, "Look, you guys got no clue." I'm just going to try and you know earn the respect and trust it and be a part of it. But if you do that, man, then. You know, if you get that chemistry going and, and you remember that you're trying to win a game, then then you, the practices make sense, you know, then, you know, the strategies make sense about when, you know, when you, why you want to try to defend and, you know, why you play the infield and, well, we're trying to stop the run because, we're, you know, we're trying to win a game and why, why might it manufacture a run. So, I, I mean, I go on forever about this thing, Brad, but mostly uh, I know that what you say is true. It's still two teams playing a game and – there's a score, and what you try to do is you try to play better than the other team, and that doesn't change. And I think for my time, you know, and you don't see it that much, it's, it's missing a little bit in today's game. But manufacturing runs creates team chemistry. Because when that 25th man on the roster sees that number three hole hitter move a runner, get him to third with less than two outs for that four hole hitter to hit a sack fly and get an RBI, maybe he hasn't had an RBI for a week. Now, all of a sudden, he can drive a run in again. From a psyche standpoint, that's what creates great chemistry, playing the game right. And, and I think what you said, manufacturing a run. That means all 25 guys are on the same side. And, and I think well, the great teams I've been on, that's what we did. Well, and you know, just you know, the, the strategic part about it is that you know, you're facing a really good pitcher. You know, and, and I don't care who you are, you know, you and your biggest home run year, or it could be any of the those four guys we talked about. You, you try to walk up there and, and try to hit a home run to uh, to impact the game against some of these really good starters and relievers. And and you're going to, you know, if you're a 300 here and you're seven, out, you're going to be out nine out of 10 times. No, you'll be 19 out of 20. You're not going to hit a home run. So the better the pitching the harder it is to, to get crooked numbers and the more you're going to have to try to get on base, get them over and get them in. And, and, uh, and nowadays, 
you know, there are some guys that, uh, you know, make mistakes over the middle plate and you get fat on it, but there are a whole lot of guys that are very difficult to hit, man. So you better be able to play the little game as well as a big one. And, and, you know, I'm sure you, I'm sure you've played against a lot of these teams, but it, it grinds on other teams. When you get, when you get that leadoff man on, he steals second, he gets moved over and it's a sacrifice fly and, and you're the opponent going, here they go again. It's, it's after a while it wears on you that's what great teams do here they go again put one across in the first inning i thought that was so important we won 116 games in 2001 and it seemed like we just bludgeoned people first inning get them over get them in it's one nothing before before the anthem's over and you know that was the best team i'd ever been on but uh, I, I i miss that about the game today not that it's not there totally but but i'd love to see more of that come back to the game all right. Uh, it's the it's the emphasize. You know, the, yeah, some of those front offices now they don't they. But I that one sixteen win team. See, I thought that's one of the classics because you had everything. You had guys that could hit the ball out of the park, hit double. You had to run the bases. But let me ask you, because like I'm and I know the answer to this. I think maybe it may, might have been the run that the, the winning run that scored that that took you to the uh, into the championship series or something. Wasn't it on a safety squeeze to first base? Was it? And, uh, was it? No, was no, it no, no. That was the year before. That was the year before I remember. That was Jose Jose Guillen. Guillen. Yeah, that was in 2000. That was the year before. Okay, so well, that there's a... That, there's but that, a was that, that was the mentality of that team. That was pretty much the same team. We had a few parts that changed. But yeah, that's how we play. That was... Lou had that team. Edgar was kind of the catalyst of that team. And and when I came to that team, I, I had a lot of talks with Edgar and he was kind of my mentor on the hitting side of things. And he taught mm-hmm. me over the years, said, you play the game, right, Brett, no matter what the score is, yeah. you play the game, right. And in the end, it seems to turn out better. You know, and this is a two time batting champ. I'm going, I want to listen to Edgar. <laughs> I want to hit like him. <laughs> you know, he so, had, it was just like that. Who? He's, he's whining out his career. Albert pools. Oh, Albert. I, I tried to do whatever is I, necessary. I just talked to, I, I just had Albert on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he was, by the way, very excited. We, we, we covered you a little bit. And I said, what do you think about Tony? You played a lot of years. He goes, these guys are going to love Tony. He gave you high praises. But I, I, I was, I try to tell people all the time and, and there's no disrespect to any current players right now, but take a look at Albert Pujols first 10 years in the big leagues. You want to talk about impressive. <laughs> I mean, I'll do respect to Mike Trout right now. What a great player. Probably the uniform, you know, if you took a vote, probably the unanimous best player in the game currently. But Albert Pujols in his first 10 years, if any of you listeners are bored, just turn over his bubblegum card if you want to see yeah. off the charts impressive. That's Pretty right. awesome. Well, just like you said, on your ball club, Edgar set the tone, right? And yeah. He'd, he'd do any, he'd do, he'd take whatever at bat was necessary to win the game. Albert did the same thing for the Cardinals. Yeah. And he, now he's chasing Hank Aaron for the all time RBI. I said, there's not too many yeah. people, Albert, I could talk to that are legitimately chasing Hank in the ribby category. Yeah, he's, he's very special. Yeah. How long do you want to do this? I know you see this team. It's an exciting team, this, this young White Sox team. How long do you want to do this? Can you win again? 
Well, uh, it, the, the question is, can we win again? Uh, can, can, you know, what I'm right. going to do is I'm, I've always felt the same way. You know, it, it's if you the coaching staff and it includes the manager, our, our responsibility is to put the guys in a place position to win the game. And when they win, it's because they played it and they did it. But we did have a value, you know, a pitching coach, a hitting coach, you know, manager, base running coach, defensive coach. You know, there's ways that you can, you know, you can improve the club or tweak guys to where they get in a good place. And so that the game is won because they took an ad batter made a play. And, uh, you know, my whole attitude, and here again, it's one of those things people say, well, I tell you, you're saying that. Well, people that know me know I meant my whole career was about the, the year we were playing. And I didn't care, you know, if I had a three-year contract, it wasn't about I had security for three years. I always felt that at the end of the year, uh, I had to have earned the owner and the general manager and the players believing that I should be the guy for next year. And that's exactly I'm, my job this year is to take it one day at a time and, and earn the respect and trust. And when we get to the end, hopefully, it's you know, the plan is we got to get to October. And then you get into that fun time. Uh, and then we'll see if uh, they want me to come back. We'll see. ARF, it's a uh, something you you've been involved with a long time. The Animal Rescue Foundation. Uh, you and your wife. I remember talking in the mid '90s uh, about it. Um, mm-hmm. Still going today. Why has this been such a passion for you over all these years? Uh, it's just the, uh, the almost miraculous effect of companion animals, you know, dogs and cats, puppies, kittens, and Elaine and I have been married a long time, and that's one, you know, one of the things that we shared now with our daughters. It's, uh, you know, we just love companion animals and what they have meant to our lives. And so if you get to know, as we did years ago, our office now is our 30th year, we're finishing. Um and before that, you know, we've been married longer than that. And the whole point was you knew that the way things are and, and uh, they were being euthanized by the, by the hundreds of thousands. And so you wanted to get in there and, you know, and, and find homes. Let's cut that down to zero if we could. So that's the way it started. Uh, it's just that, you know, one of the things that happened, Brett, is that as a manager, and you know this, that you get to talk to the press twice a day you know, before and after the game. And once they're done asking a question of the game, they usually have notes. So ARF got a lot of free publicity and we had a lot of people come on board to, to help us. And, and uh, we're going strong after 30 years. Our complex is in uh, Walnut Creek. And I'll tell you very quickly, we started out people rescuing animals, but in the fourth year or fifth year, we started with the animals rescuing people. So we take, you know, the animals with the right temperament to hospitals and you know, senior homes and schools for education. And nine years ago, we started taking veterans with PTSD and, and putting, giving them a companion. And, uh, and that, and that's taken a life of its own. So it's, it's, it's one of those inspiring things. It's hard for us to imagine what it's become, but it inspires you to, uh, in fact, we, that's one thing Mr. Haas and Mr. Reinsdorf and Mr. with three owners I work with, they always said, you know, for the team, you know, you got to find a way to get, give back to the community. And, and, uh, we did with, with, with animals and it's, it's been, uh, <laughs> beyond our dreams, how important, uh, it's become. Very cool. 
Well, Tony, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. There's one thing we do here on the Boone Podcast is uh, the end of the show. We ha- we have a question from the fans and the voice of the Boone Podcast, Dan Levy, will ask that question. Dan, where are you? I'm right here, guys. How are you? A little bit louder. Okay, Tony, we have a question from Mark. He's in Chicago. And the question is this. What did Jerry say when he first called, or did you reach out to him? No, I would never reach out to him because I first, one thing, uh, uh, I I had no no real idea about what Ricky Renteria's future. Uh, he, he, He called, and I think, you know, but he had talked to Kenny and, Williams and, and Rick, because they're the guys that really have remade this roster into the contender it is. And he said, you know, I guess, you know, we think we're close to winning and, uh, you know, would you consider coming back? And, uh, you know, then we started having conversations and, you know, the answer is yes. And we're all working forward now, but uh, that's how it started. All right. Well, that one goes to Mark in Chicago. We appreciate it. And Tony, being a guy from Chicago, I look forward to seeing you every day out here. It's a, it's a thrill. I think you're going to do a great job. So I, I wish you the best of luck, and I'm rooting for you, and I know we're all rooting for you out of here. So thanks again for coming on the Bread Boom Podcast. I know one thing, man. If I can manage to the talent that's on that team, we're going to be all right. Cause we've got a lot of talent. But let me add one last thing, because uh, it's been an honor, because I'm a baseball fanatic for since i was four or five years old and uh the boone family is uh historic and i've had the great chance to know quite a few of them and uh so i, I really brett thanks for having me my pleasure tony thanks for coming on it's, this was great and i think uh it gives the, the people out there listening a chance to see what they're getting in chicago and i i I'll just reiterate it. I think it's a great thing, great thing for the game. I think these kids are going to welcome you with open arms. You know, probably half of them, they're so young, you know, they're, they're going to be in awe. They're going to almost be like, oh, Tony the Roos is coming. But I think it's going to be a really great thing. And I think, you know, like I, I shared with you, Albert was really excited. And he said, wait do you see how much these guys are going to like Tony. So I wish you nothing but the best. And, and once again, thanks for coming on. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Well, I appreciate that, man. And uh, I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Mailbag. All right, Boone. You know that sound. That means it's time to dig into the Boone mailbag. You ready to rock? I'm ready to go. Let's do All it. All right. Brett Booner from James wants to know the best city in the big leagues to spend an off day. Wow. I, I think that's um, individualized. So it's going to depend who you are, what you like. For me, uh, I loved having an off day in New York. There's just so much to do, so much to see. I, I used to just like to walk around the town and just, you know, have the guys yelling at me from across the street. Oh, they're going to kick my ass tomorrow. I, I just would that like, happen? Did that happen? I, I, I know sure. I've heard that with people. Always, always in a, always in a good way. New York. I, I loved going to New York. I loved playing at old Yankee Stadium. Um, it's just different. People on the East Coast, Boston, New York, Philly. Man, they take their sports serious, uh, but but I just I don't know. There's not enough I could I could say about just walking around Manhattan, Big Apple, and uh, that's for me. All right, there's there's your answer, Dan. <laughs> that's the one I was looking for. That's the one that James was looking for. The Brew Man asked, "Who is the best golfer in the big leagues, and who are some of the best golfers you've ever played with?" 
best golfer in the big leagues currently. Uh, I don't know of the current players. Uh, my generation, Mark Mulder is the wow. best guy out there right now. Uh, Smoltz, pretty good. Not quite at Mulder's level. Um, yeah. I don't know who the current the, of the modern day players are. Aaron Hicks is really good. I just played in a tournament with him out in Pebble Beach. Aaron Hicks can really hit it. Um, Josh Donaldson, good player. But uh, yeah, my generation, Mark Mulder right now is currently the best player. Can you beat Mark Mulder? No chance. No chance. No chance. <clears throat> wow. All right. And the last one, Lou B wants to know, could Brett Boone have played another sport professionally? That's a great question. I, that, that sounds like a question from my kids. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I kind of let's rule out basketball right now from the from the height challenge people of America. That that would be me. How tall so are let's you? Rule out basketball. How tall are you? Five uh, ten. Okay, it's not that. That's not too short. Let's see the major sport. I, I don't know. I, I think you would have to do it, whatever it was. You know, you'd have to start at a young age. And, and the way I started with baseball, you know, from the time I could walk, that's all I did is play baseball. If I didn't have a, a buddy or, or <laughs> my brother around, I'd throw a tennis ball off the garage door. You got to be a baseball rat. Whatever you're going to try to do, you've got to be over the top, passionate about it. Because the the guys out there, especially at the highest level, they're just too good to to haphazardly play. Unless you're a, a once in a lifetime talent, you know. If you're a LeBron James, if you're a Ken Griffey Jr., uh, those guys might have made it even if they weren't passionate about it. Because they're they're just a different level of talent. But for the rest of us normal big league players, uh, you got to be passionate. About it. Could I have played another one? I don't know. You know, I had some speed. I don't know if I was fast enough. NFL wise, I, I definitely wouldn't have been a lineman, but uh, I, I, I don't know. I, so my answer is probably not if I'm going to be completely honest, but, I, but you'll never know because I never I, ne- I never pursued anything else. Gotcha. Could you have dunked the basketball? Were you able to dunk? No, never could dunk. Uh, no, not even close. <laughs> Maybe a tennis ball. Would Maybe you believe in high school like I was able to get up there? I just couldn't palm the ball. Would you believe that if I told you that? Oh, yeah. With the things I've seen you do off camera here? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) A man of many talents, but that is mostly you. Brett Boone, we're going to wrap this podcast off by saying thank you to you. And we're going to thank our guest, Tony LaRussa, now the new skipper. For the Chicago White Sox, we want to thank you for jumping aboard, and we want to thank all of you for tuning into this podcast and continuing to help us make it grow. Please continue to comment, review on the podcast, share it to all your friends and family. You're not going to hear a podcast like this anywhere else. All the players and anybody that comes on here, they actually want to be on this podcast. It's awesome, and it's a great listen, and I'm proud to be a part of this one. So for Brett Boone, if you want to follow him, please go ahead and do so. It's at the Boone 29. If you want to go ahead and message him and shoot him some questions, that's where we're kind of cherry picking some of these questions for the mailbag. And you can also get them on Facebook, Instagram. Those are all good spots to send him some questions and we can dig through those when we do the next podcast. But for all of us here at the Brett Boone podcast, thanks for joining us. My name is Dan Levy. We'll talk to you guys soon. Take care, everybody.